0: Well, that uh, last song is probably very appropriate because uh, my message today may be a burden for some of you. Uh, We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, this morning, so I invite you to open your Bibles there with me, verses 13 through 18. And we're going to be looking at the timing of the rapture. So this is one of those uh, subjects, obviously, where believers have uh, differing opinions. But let me begin by... Uh, reading this passage, and it's a glorious passage indeed, though it is uh, very controversial on certain levels. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, as Paul now addresses uh, the issue of eschatology. That is the study of last things. So it's uh, verse 13... So please uh, listen carefully and reverently to the reading of God's holy word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like those who have no hope, like the rest who, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, well many of us are familiar with this passage because uh, it has often been Uh, understood to teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Uh, When I was in seminary, this is what I was taught. This is uh, those who discipled me taught me this particular view. And the president of uh, Dallas Seminary, where I had the privilege of uh, going, in one of his books, The Blessed Hope and the Tribulation, stated this. He said, probably more pre-tribulationists base their conclusion for a pre-tribulational rapture on 1 Thessalonians 4 than on any other single passage of Scripture. So what he is stating here is that most people who believe in a pre-trib rapture, and I'll explain that more in just a moment if you're not familiar with that language, Uh, Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. This is one of their go-to passages to support a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Now, if that's true, of course, we should expect that this should be a pretty clear passage on stating that particular view. It's a very uh, popular view today. It has been since its inception around 1830 with John Nelson Darby who kind of popularized and promoted this particular view. It's uh, still today a very popular view, and many good and godly saints hold this view. Again, I've been blessed and taught by by many of them over the years. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, many of you here this morning have been taught this view, and some probably still hold the view. So it's certainly one that's very popular within the church today. But in spite of that, my own pilgrimage in the area of eschatology when I was in seminary, I started seeing problems with this particular view. And what I want to do this morning is to go over four reasons why I don't think First Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I think the church will most definitely go through whatever future tribulation period there is and uh, that is my my view, and uh, that has been the view, really, of the church up until 1830, about. So it's the pre-trib rapture view is not reflected in any of the older creeds, because the view really had not been developed at that point in time. But let me begin a little bit of background, just with the word rapture. Uh, it's not found in this passage, but... It comes from verse 17 when it says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And in the Latin Vulgate, that particular word caught up is rapere, and it means to, to snatch up. Uh, it means to, to seize. And that's where we get our English word rapture from. It's, it's where we are caught up when Christ comes back to meet him in the air. So that's where the word rapture comes from. You won't find it in the Bible, kind of like the word Trinity, but it nevertheless refers to this being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now the pre-trib view, the pre-tribulational rapture view is unique to dispensationalism. All the other views of eschatology would not hold to this view, uh, but it believes that there will be a future Seven-year tribulation period. And that's based because dispensationalism holds to a very strong division between Israel and the church. Two separate, distinct peoples of God with different promises, different covenants. So basically, when Israel rejected Christ, their program was put on hold. And so now we're in a parenthetical church age but Israel's program still lacks to fulfill Daniel's 70th week of prophecy. So that seven weeks, that 70th week turns out to be this seven-year tribulation period. But before Israel can have its Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year tribulation period, the church age has to end. So you have to remove the church off of the earth And then you have the final seven-year tribulation period. And then you have the second coming. So according to this view, Christ descends in the clouds. He raptures up the church to meet Him. And then they go back up into heaven for that seven-year period. So the church does not have to go through the tribulation. We're raptured out before it even begins. Now, there are other views besides the, the pre-trib rapture. There's a mid-trib and there's a three-quarter-trib view that's called the, basically the, uh, the pre-wrath view. And then there's the post-trib view, which I think is what's being taught, where the rapture takes place in conjunction with Christ's second coming. We go up to meet Him in the air, but instead of going back up to heaven, we actually come with Christ down to the earth. So this is the view that I, think, that I hold to. Uh, the ancient church up until, again, 1830, this is the view that was held to. So there's a second coming. We're raptured up to meet the Lord in the air. And then instead of going back up to heaven, we come down to earth with the Lord as He prepares to judge the living and the dead at that time. So I think this view is the right view. And uh, so I want to go over four reasons why I think it's the, uh, the correct view. The first is uh, the context of the passage. If you look at this, there's really nothing about a future tribulation period anywhere in the context of this passage. So the likelihood that Paul is thinking about that is really uh, a bit foreign. That's not what's on Paul's mind in this context at all. And instead, what we see is his uh, concern. He's addressing the concern that Thessalonian believers had about their family members, their friends who have already died. What's going to happen to them? Will they miss out on the coming of Christ whenever that is? So in verse 13, he says, but we do not want you to be informed, brethren, about those who are asleep, That's a euphemism for those Christians who have already died. So that you will grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So they were grieving because Paul, when he was there, taught them some about the second coming, but he didn't have time to fill in all the gaps. So there was a lot that they did not understand. And so they had the question, well, okay, we're waiting for Christ to come back, but what about all those who have already died? Will they miss out on the second coming? Will they miss out on all this glorious resurrection, or or I I should say also the, the glorification that will occur at the second coming? What about that? And they were grieving about that because they did not have answers to those questions. That's the issue. That's the context. That's the topic that Paul is addressing. So his answer, as you well know, I'm sure, within the passage, is that Paul will say adamantly they will not miss out. In fact, those who have died in Christ will actually be resurrected and raised. And then we will join them in the air. We will be transformed. We will be translated. We'll be glorified. They're not going to miss out. Together we will be raised and and glorified to meet the Lord in the air. So that's his answer. So that's what we'll see. And we'll look at this more next week when we actually work through the passage and look at what, uh, what all it's saying. But notice also, if you look at verse uh, 18, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's nothing about them going through a future tribulation period. That's not in the context. That's not what Paul is even addressing. He's addressing what's happened to the dead saints. And they were grieving about it. So after he explains to them that they will not miss out, they'll actually be resurrected first. Then he says in verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another. Nothing about escaping some future tribulation period. Nothing in the context at all about that. So there's sorrow in verse 13 was not over the possibility of their entering into some future tribulation period. No. And their comfort in verse 18 was not related to somehow escaping a future tribulation period. There's none of that in the context whatsoever. In fact, the only tribulation and suffering that's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians is what was going on in the first century in the church at that time and also with what Paul himself was suffering. That's the only tribulation mentioned in 1 Thessalonians at all. For example, if you look at chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, "...you also became imitators of us and of the Lord." having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the only tribulation Paul has in mind was what was going on in the first century that they were enduring at that time. They were in the tribulation at that time. They were going through tribulation. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. So again, Paul is referencing that they were going through suffering back then when he wrote the letter to them. That's the only tribulation that he really has in mind in this letter. And then Paul talks about his tribulations personally. Chapter 3, verse 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. In verse 4, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. So the only persecution and affliction in this letter is what was currently going on in the Thessalonian church and also in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Nothing about a future tribulation period at all. So the context does not support the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture. Paul is not comforting them by giving them the hope that they'll escape some future tribulation period. That is not in the context at all. So that's my first reason for saying uh, it doesn't fit this passage does not fit with a pre trib rapture. It's not it's not in the context. The second reason why The pre-trib rapture view does not fit this. this passage is found in verse 17. And it's that little word to meet. So he says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That is the dead saints who have been resurrected will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now it doesn't say they meet the Lord in the air and then they go back up to heaven. It doesn't say that. We meet the Lord in the air. But at least in the English, we're not told do they go back up to heaven or do they come down to earth? And so many so so you would think that it's left, it's not even addressed. However, The word meet, that particular Greek word, strongly indicates that we're raptured up into the the clouds to meet the Lord and then we return back down to the earth. And that only occurs at the second coming. Not a pre-trib rapture seven years before that. Now don't just take my word for it. Let me give you three Greek uh, authorities and their definitions for this word meet in this particular verse. And, uh, and, and at least you can believe them. So one of them is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. This is edited by Kittle. It's a, it's a massive, authoritative work. It's ten volumes long. Uh, we have it in our church library and uh, the word meat in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, is the Greek word opentasis. Okay? So in that dictionary, that Greek dictionary, this is what it says. That this word opentasis is to be understood as a technical term for a civic custom of antiquity whereby a public welcome was accorded by a city to an important visitor's. So here's the idea. A city is expecting a king or a military general coming to their city. So the people of the city leave the city. They go out and meet the distinguished dignitary that's coming. And then they escort him back into the city. That's what this word means. This is the. It can only fit with a post-trib rapture. We rapture up. We we leave it. We don't leave a city, per se, but we leave the earth. We go up. We meet the the coming dignitary. In this case, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we escort him back down to the earth from where we originated from. That is the idea in this particular passage, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Edited by Kittle. So this is the idea that that word is presenting. We're raptured up. But it's not Christ turns around and goes back up to heaven. But we therefore turn around and escort Him down into where we came from. So this is the idea of verse 17. There's a second Greek authority of the Greek language. The vocabulary of the Greek New Testament. This is from Moulton Milligan. Uh, and this one, it's a, it's a great resource because they primarily look at the Greek words as they're used in secular Koine Greek. Everyday life of, of Greek people. And this is what he says. Speaking of the word meat in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, the word seems to have been a kind of This is the abbreviation for technical term for the official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary A usage which accords excellently with its New Testament usage. So again, a second Greek authority says that the word meet means we would rise up and meet the Lord in the air. But then not go back up to heaven, but we would then escort Him as His incredible entourage as He descends into the earthly realm as He comes to earth. So they agree with the first one. And then there's a third one. This is from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology edited by Colin Brown. We also have that in our church library. Volume 1, page 325. The use of opentasis in first Thessalonians four verse seventeen, the word coming or meet excuse me, the word to meet is noteworthy. The ancient expression for the civic welcome of an important visitor or the triumphal entry of a new ruler into the capital city and thus to his reign, and that's applied to Christ in first Thessalonians four seventeen. So in other words, all three Greek authorities say that this particular Greek word supports this idea that we are raptured up from the earth. We come out of the city, as it were. We greet the arriving king or dignitary and then we escort him. We become the the, the shouting choir. We become the rejoicing mob that then ushers him back down to the earth. A similar word is used in, in uh, the Gospels of Christ's triumphal entry. The people came out of Jerusalem. They began shouting, Hosanna, him who comes the us. And then they escort him back into Jerusalem. It's not that Christ comes down to meet us and we're the dignitar- dignitary and then we go back up to heaven. It's the opposite of that idea. And this is what the Greek word means according to these three Greek authorities. This particular word, meet, that's found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is also found in Matthew 25.6. This is of the virgins waiting for the bridegroom. And at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And so the five virgins that were prepared and ready, they come out. They meet the bridegroom and then they turn around and they take him into the wedding feast. It's not that they come out and the bridegroom turns around and they go back to where the bridegroom came from. No, no, no. The, the virgins go out, they meet him, they turn around, they usher him into the wedding feast where they came from. That's the idea. So it doesn't fit with a pre-trib rapture view at all. It can only fit with a post-trib rapture view. Luke uses the same word again, in, uh, well, for the first time actually, in Acts twenty-eight verse fifteen, and this is when Paul is on his way to Rome. Remember, he's under Roman uh, guard; he's been, he's a prisoner, and he's on his way to Rome. And it says that the brethren, when they heard about it, came from there, from Rome as far as the market of Apias and the three ends, to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage, because now they joined him as he completed his journey and went to Rome. So these people came out of Rome, they met Paul, they turned around, they ushered him into Rome. So this is the, just to give you a, a graphic of this, they came out of Rome, they heard Paul was traveling up through Italy. They went down to the three ends, the market of Apius, They met Paul. Then they turned around and ushered him back into Rome. So that's what we do. It's really not the idea of a pre-trib rapture. It's actually the opposite of that. The pre-trib rapture says Christ comes down, we meet Him. Then Christ turns around and goes back up. But this word is actually saying the opposite. It's saying that we go up and meet the Lord in the air. We become His, His uh, entourage. We're like the virgins. We're like the people of Rome. We go out of the city. We meet the dignitary. We meet the important person. And then we welcome Him back into our city. So we come down. We descend with Him to the earth. So the word itself, the Greek word itself strongly argues for a post-trib rapture, not a pre-trib rapture. So that's another problem with this particular view. Okay, here's a third a third reason why I think that this passage is not pre-trib. Now I'm not trying to be gloom and doom uh, with everyone that really has embraced the pre-trib Uh, Position, Um, but uh, we're just trying to wrestle with what the text is saying. So there's another reason why the pre trib rapture view doesn't fit with 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's the comparison with Matthew chapter 24. So, for example, this is from the Lord Himself, and that's probably what Paul has in mind in verse 15 when he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He's thinking of, Paul is thinking of the teachings of our Lord. And notice what he says. The Lord says in the Olivet Discourse. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. So this is an after-tribulation event that Jesus is describing. After the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from the sky. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So I want you to notice the parallel between 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24. It's the same language that's being borrowed. The Son is coming, same Greek word, from heaven. There are angels. There's a great trumpet. The elect are gathered or caught up. They meet the Lord and they meet Him in the clouds. So that the Apostle Paul was certainly seems to be borrowing directly from Matthew chapter 24. Now all dispensationalists believe that Matthew 24 has a future fulfillment. And if that's the case, then... Notice when all of these things take place in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So all of this event, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with the angels, the great trumpet, the gathering together to be with Christ, all occurs after the tribulation. So the very fact that the Apostle Paul is borrowing The same language, probably just uh, rewording some of the, the word, but he's borrowing these same words and concepts from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24. And since Matthew 24 clearly says this happens after the tribulation, then there's no support for 1 Thessalonians 4 that uses the same language to be before the tribulation. It just doesn't fit. So this is, uh, to me, a very strong and powerful third reason why First Thessalonians four does not really teach a pre-trib rapture. The fourth uh, reason is just the general attitude found in the uh, scriptures that uh, speak about what our attitude should be towards persecution. And before I get into some verses here, let me just say, so let's assume a post-trib rapture. All the evidence seems to go in that direction. That the church will be raptured to meet the Lord. But will be at the second coming. We'll meet the Lord in the air. Then we become his great joyful thong. His, his entourage that comes down as he begins to judge the, the living and the dead. So what's the purpose of the rapture then? If it's post-trib, not pre-trib. It's post-trib. The significance is number one. It's most appropriate. For when the King comes from heaven in His glory, when the King comes to conquer His enemies, it's most appropriate that all of His saints be gathered with Him and as it were, stand behind Him as He begins to bring about this incredible victory and conquest and to celebrate and fulfill uh, that great victory over sin and Satan and everything else. It's appropriate that that the people of God come as His entourage, that we come because we are on His side as He now begins to judge His enemies. So so the rapture at that point is very appropriate so that Christ just doesn't come by Himself. But even in Revelation 19, there's a great throng of, of the saints from heaven that join the Lord as He comes at the second coming. But there's another purpose for the rapture at that point in time. At the end of the tribulations, Jesus is now coming in His second coming. And that is, it's a separation of the sheep from the goats. So that's where the separation takes place for the sheep-goat judgment of Matthew chapter 25. So all of that is very, to me, in my mind, very strategic. But if you look at the, uh, the rest of the New Testament, Uh, Usually, the, uh, the teaching on tribulation is this. The Bible pretty much uniformly says, expect it, prepare for it, and rejoice in it if you have to go through it because you're blessed. Now, it's true Jesus did say that, hey, If they're persecuting you and you can flee to the next city, then flee to the next city. I mean, we're not masochists. We don't go looking for persecution. But the general flavor of the New Testament is to face persecution with boldness and courage in Christ. Don't seek to escape it in in terms of being... Lifted up and taken off the earth before the tribulation comes. But face it with boldness and courage. That is the general, consistent message of the Scriptures. So let me just review some of these verses with you real quickly. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Now, was Jesus in saying, you know, there's a bad tribulation period coming, but don't worry, I'm going to rescue you out of that. The, the teaching of our Lord is it's coming. Get ready for it. Prepare for it. But keep your eye on the glory that's right on the other side. Keep your eye on the on, on the reward in heaven, because that's going to be great. And so he's emphasizing that. And uh in Luke, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And so here the Lord is just emphasizing. That sometimes, you know, you're going to follow me to the grave. You may lose your life as you live for me. And that's why, you know, his uh, challenge of discipleship was always so radical. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. What does that mean? You've got to be willing to die. In other words, it, it, he's, he's confronting us with the reality that we live in a, in a world that hates Christ. And because they hate Christ, they're going to hate us. Expect persecution. Prepare for persecution. And that seems to be the message. Remember in Acts chapter 5, after calling the, the apostles in, they flogged them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. See, it's the attitude that if, if we ever have to endure persecution or suffering or even death, that, that it is a privilege And they they rejoiced in it that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. See, it's the attitude. Not that we go looking. Nobody wants to suffer or go through tribulation. But if in God's providence it comes, we should consider ourselves blessed to be worthy of suffering for His name. See, that's the attitude. Not one of just looking forward to an escape. Paul says in Philippians one twenty nine that when God saves you He gives you two gifts. One is the gift of faith, the other is the gift of suffering. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him but also to suffer for His sake. It's a part of our calling, brethren. In verse chapter three verse ten, Paul could say that I may the longing of His heart was that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death. He counted a privilege to suffer shame for the name of Christ because you enter into a fellowship of His sufferings. We identify with Christ in that way. In Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body. So again, he rejoices in his sufferings. But what did he counsel the church? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. Prepare for it. Endure it. Rejoicing. Because you are blessed if you have to go through it. That's the attitude. Peter picks it up from the Lord Jesus when he says in chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, then keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And the implication is that suffering will go all the way to the time when He reveals Himself in glory at the second coming. In verse fourteen, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's the attitude. It's not a hope of escaping. I mean, on a practical level, if they're coming, yeah, you try to flee and get away from it. But in general, our attitude is that if we have to suffer for Christ, we are blessed. It's a privilege, it's an honor. That we're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We have the same thing in the book of Revelation, right smack dab in the middle of the tribulation. Here we have the saints. Who are the saints? It's used throughout the New Testament for the church. To say it's a Jewish remnant in there, uh, people hold that view, but the word saints is consistently in Scripture used for the church. Here they are in the middle of the tribulation. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. They are Christians. They have faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Some have died up to this point, but blessed are those who die from here on out through the rest of the tribulation period. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. So even in the middle of the tribulation, those who die in the Lord, notice that phrase, they die in the Lord. That is a unique phrase to describe Christians who die. They die in Christ. They die in the Lord. And blessed are those Who die in the Lord from now on. So the New Testament really, from the Sermon on the Mount to the middle of the tribulation and revelation, talk about suffering persecution brings blessings. Nobody wants to go through persecution, but if we're called upon by the grace of God to do it, there will be many blessings associated with it. It's not something we fear. It's something we should anticipate and prepare for. That's the general drift of the mentality that the New Testament gives to us. You see, persecution has always been the lot of the church. Stephen was stoned. Paul was stoned. Raised from the dead. But he was stoned. All the apostles were killed For their discipleship and preaching of the gospel, except for maybe the Apostle John. Many of the believers in the first century and the following centuries were heavily persecuted by the Roman emperors and Caesars. They were thrown to wild animals and lions and mauled and eaten. They were burned alive in Nero's courts just for entertainment. They suffered tremendously under the emperors Trajan, Domitian, Decius, Diocletian, and many others. So that Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, could say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, that the believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ who died for Christ, actually caused the church to grow all the more. Church has never really been spared much from persecution. The rise of Islam from the 7th to the 11th centuries, the Christian homeland in Jerusalem and Palestine were crushed under Islamic invasions. Churches were plundered. Christian women were raped. Torture of Christian leaders. Pilfering of villages and towns. Throughout the Middle Ages, Islam remained a persistent danger to the church. And if you would not if you would not convert to Islam, if they didn't kill you, then they would force you to servitude. The counter-reformation of the Roman Catholic Church brought a new wave of persecution. The Inquisitions, the slaughter of the Albigenses and the Waldensians in France and Italy slaughtered them. Chased them up in the mountains. Slaughtered them. Then later, the slaughter of the Huguenots in France and Europe Later in England, the bloody Queen Mary who burned alive at the stake around 300 Protestants and Puritans. And then, of course, we come to communism which has imprisoned, tortured, killed many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. George Grant, in an article found on the Ligonier website, Said throughout church history, believers have suffered persecution and obscurity. They have been beaten, ridiculed, defrocked, and defamed. They have suffered poverty and isolation, betrayal and disgrace. They have been hounded and harassed and murdered. And the heroes of the faith have always been those who sacrificed their lives and fortunes and reputations for the sake of the gospel. And indeed, persecution and martyrdom have been among the church's highest callings and greatest honors. He goes on to say that according to ministries such as Open Doors and Voice of Martyrs, more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last century than in all other ages combined. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin, Fidel Castro, Pol Pot, and more unleashed untold horrors Christians, if not killed, were consigned to prison cells, gulags, concentration camps, detention centers, torture chambers, labor camps, and millions were and still are sacrificed on the bloodiest secular altars of communist utopia. Persecution has always been the lot of the church. And the reason why I think the pre-trib rapture view has rooted itself in the West and particularly in America is because we, by the grace of God, are still riding on the, the after effects of the Protestant Reformation, the revivals we've had in our own country. The fact that our government was established to reflect certain Christian worldview principles which has protected our religious liberties. And because of that, in America, we have not had hardly any persecution to speak of for a number of centuries. And because of that, and that's also in in other places like England since 1830, since the pre-trib rapture really arose, Uh, they've had many of those same privileges. The result of that, I think, is when we start thinking about tribulation, we begin to fear it. And we begin to really prefer a view that says we won't have to go through it. But the church has always had to go through persecution. Our brothers and sisters, many of them have died and suffered and been tortured for their faith throughout the ages. And the attitude of of that, you know, we really... And and you know, again, we would all prefer not to go through the tribulation. Uh, but I do think that whenever that comes, that it will vary in intensity. Um, just like it does now, there are certain parts of the world where Christians are being put to death as we speak. But not in America. At least right now. Again, we have been blessed because Even our Supreme Court recently has made several encouraging rulings protecting religious liberty in our country. So we have certainly been blessed by God's common grace in many ways. But I remind you again what Jesus taught His disciples. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What Jesus is saying is, church, prepare for it. Expect it. And if it should come your way, endure it knowing that you are blessed in Christ. And keep your eye on the prize right on the other side. Jesus also said, Do not fear those who kill the body and are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear the tribulation, Antichrist, the beast. These are not people to fear. They, they only move and act under the authority of our King and our Savior and our Lord who will one day crush them under our feet. Not something to fear. Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. And then notice what he says, be faithful until death and I'll give you the crown of life. So if it comes, some will die. Maybe many will die. But we don't fear men. We fear our God to be faithful even unto death because right on the other side is the crown of life. So when you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if indeed... Dr. Walford was correct in saying that more people go to First Thessalonians chapter 4 to support their pre-trib view than any other passage in Scripture, then I would have to comment that that's, that's weak. And no other passages are going to fare any better, in my opinion, that might be brought forward to support a pre-trib rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't support it. And I don't think others do either. I think the rapture, as glorious as that is, is going to take place at the end of the tribulation. And there's a lot to be encouraged by when we study that. And that will be our our joy to do that, Lord willing, next time. But though the pre-trib rapture is very popular, know from my heart, I was not intending to step on anybody's toes. I'm just trying to present what I think the text is saying and the four reasons why I don't think you can get a pre-trib rapture out of First Thessalonians chapter 4. Same time, you have the freedom to study it out, make up your own opinion on these matters, but my convictions are that it doesn't teach a pre-trib rapture. So may the Lord encourage us with this blessed hope there is a rapture and one day... If we're still alive, when Christ comes back, we'll be a part of it. But if we die before then, then we experience the resurrection at that time as well. So either way, we win. And the rapture, again, is a glorious event. And again, we'll try to look at the passage now. We'll walk our way through it, Lord willing, uh, next time. So, um, again, I hope that your burdens have been light, as we sang earlier. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for the opportunity to evaluate a view that is certainly very popular today. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, the Spirit would guide us into Your truth. And Lord, if I've in any way misspoke or misrepresented, I ask, Lord, for Your forgiveness. And Lord, that you would preserve the the unity within this body who holds to many different views on eschatology. But Lord, we thank you that we all have that love for one another and we all have the Word of God that we can go and test our views and seek to grow in spirit and in truth through the Scriptures. So Lord, thank you for this time. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.